But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ. This is the word of the Lord for us. Thank you to God. My name is Cameron Gates. I'm the youth pastor here. And I always think it's good to start off with a joke. So I got a joke for you guys. There's this Jewish man, and his son graduates college. And he decides to let his son go on a trip to Israel to visit the Holy Land. He does so. He stays there for a few months. And when he returns home, the father greets him, only to find out that he's become a Christian. The father thinks this is maybe a little strange. But he doesn't think anything of it until he's talking with his best friend explains what happens to his best friend, and his friend says, you know what? That's strange. Same thing happened to me. My son went to Israel, spent a few months there, came back a Christian. So now the two guys are suspicious. They think something's up. They don't know what. So they decide to go to their local synagogue and ask the rabbi, what, what, why did this happen? What does this mean? So they do that. And when they explain what happened to the rabbi, the rabbi says, that's strange. The same thing happened to me. So now all three of them know something's up, and they're like, we need to go to Jerusalem, go to Israel, find out what happened, get to the bottom of this. No more asking anybody else. So they do. They travel there. They get there. They go straight to the Western Wailing Wall. They're talking directly with God, and they're explaining what happened, and they're telling him, why did this happen to us? And God listens to them, and God says, that's strange. The same thing happened to me. <laughs> Today we'll be continuing our series on Philippians, looking specifically at Philippians chapter 3. We'll be looking at the example that Paul set for the church back then and for us today. But before we get into that, I want to tell you guys a story. Maybe one you've heard before. There's an old Indian parable about six blind men and an elephant. And this, these six blind men lived in a village that would take care of them. They loved the blind men. They protected them from anything dangerous or harmful. But because of that, the blind men learned about a lot of things just by hearing about it. They didn't experience it themselves. And the thing they were most fascinated by was elephants. And they would spend hours and hours each day arguing about what an elephant was. Because they'd heard that elephants could trample trees. They'd heard you could ride them into battle. But they'd also heard that the king would trust an elephant with his daughter and let her ride on the elephant in, through a parade. And so they were fascinated by this, and they would argue. I'm going to read to you guys a little bit of their conversation. The first man states what he believes. You know, an elephant is what it is. The second man says, no, you must be wrong. An elephant must be graceful and gentle if a princess is to ride on its back. No, you are wrong. I've heard that an elephant can pierce a man's heart with its terrible horn, said the third blind man. And the fourth blind man responded, please, you're all mistaken. 
An elephant is nothing more than a large sort of cow. You know how people exaggerate. The fifth man said, I'm sure that an elephant is something magical. That would explain why the king's daughter can travel safely through the kingdom. I don't believe elephants exist at all, said the sixth man. I think we're the victims of a cruel joke. So they'd argue, they'd argue. And then finally, the villagers got sick of it. Say, this is enough. You guys need to go out and meet an elephant and experience it firsthand. Touch it, examine it. You can get an idea of what it is. Stop arguing. So they got a villager to lead them out into the farmlands to where the royal elephants were kept and where a farmer was tending to them. They came up to one and they said, go ahead, it's safe. You can step forward and examine it. And they each went up and were examining it. I'm going to read to you what happened. The first blind man reached out and touched the side of the huge animal. An elephant is smooth and solid like a wall, he declared. It's very powerful. Second blind man put his hand on the trunk. He said, an elephant is like a giant snake. The third man felt the pointed tusk. He said, I was right. It's sharp and deadly as a spear. The fourth man felt one of the legs. He said, what do we have here? Obviously an extremely large cow. The fifth blind man felt the elephant's left ear and said, I believe an elephant is like a huge fan, maybe a magic carpet that can fly over mountains and treetops. And the sixth blind man gave a tug on the elephant's coarse and hairy tail. He said, why, this is nothing more than an old piece of rope. Dangerous indeed. Then the farmer called them away to stop arguing and said, sit here and wait while I get you a drink. And they all started arguing. An elephant is a wall. No, it's a snake, a spear, a cow. Don't you see? Someone tricked us. And they start yelling and yelling. Finally, the farmer comes back and says, stop. You are all wrong. The elephant is a large animal, but each man only touched one part. Perhaps if you put the parts together, you'll see the truth. And that's what I want you guys to understand this morning. Today, in order for us to see the truth, we need somebody who can see the entire picture, the whole picture. You need to see the whole elephant to understand it. The elephant here is obviously Philippians chapter 3. And while this can be said of most passages of Scripture, it's definitely true about this passage. That you could write a sermon series from this one chapter, and I'm going to speak today for about 25 minutes on it. So while we're going to look very closely at some parts, we may not look that closely at other parts. And so if you finish today and you feel like, you know what, I don't feel like I have a complete picture of this chapter, of the whole elephant, I encourage you, I beg you to go home and examine each part and get to know it yourself so you can get that full picture, so you can examine it and hear what God was trying to say through Paul to the church of Philippi. Let's pray, and then we'll read. Generally, Father, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for first loving us. I pray you would help us to focus on you for this next little bit and just put away any distractions in our heart, in our mind, and take captive every thought. May your words speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So Philippians chapter 3, the first three verses we'll read. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. It's a safeguard for you. And watch out for those dogs, those evildoers who are mutilators of the flesh. For it's we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul starts off in typical Paul fashion, right? Telling them, rejoice. And he does this from prison in Rome. You guys know that in the book of Philippians, Paul uses the words joy and rejoice 16 times. And then it's almost tongue-in-cheek because he then says, 
it's okay for me to repeat myself. It's actually good for you. It reminds you to rejoice and helps you remember that rejoicing is important. And then in verse 2, he begins his warning, warning against Judaizers, which is Pharisees that pretended to be workers of righteousness, but would actually come in and judge people in the church, telling the church, you have people here who aren't saved, specifically Gentiles or non-Jews, because you're not circumcised or because you're not worshiping correctly. Paul called them false prophets, false teachers, sheeps, uh, <laughs> sheeps, wolves in sheep's clothing. But the word he uses is what? Dogs, right? Back then at that time, at the edges of certain cities, there were actually dangerous packs of wild dogs that would roam around eating garbage. They smelled terrible. They would attack people. And in that time, the Pharisees, the, the Jewish Pharisees would use that term the smelly, dirty, vicious dogs, to describe and insult the Gentiles, the non-Jews. So it's funny, but it's also on purpose that Paul is using that term here to insult and describe the Pharisees, dogs. And that's what he's warning about. Paul's warning, though, in different words, is about legalism, trying to prove your own righteousness through your actions and your effort. So he tells the church to watch out for them and to remember in verse 3 that they are the true circumcision, which is spiritual. And that while the Pharisees are saying, you need to worship God in flesh, in action, in ritual, that actually they're worshiping God correctly. The church is worshiping in truth and in spirit. So to summarize these three verses, Paul comes in and he warns them. He says, beware of the Judaizers. And he reminds them, you are the true followers of Christ. All right? Let's move on to the next section. Philippians 3, verses 4 through 8. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. So here Paul shows how he rejected his privileges and his benefits in order that he might gain Christ. He starts off in verse 4 by saying, I had reason to have confidence in my flesh, like the Pharisees that he's warning against. I had reason to have confidence in myself. And he's drawing a parallel between himself and the Pharisees. Why? Because he was a Pharisee. And he goes through and he explains how good his life was and how revered he was. He, he was circumcised on the eighth day. That's the day prescribed in Israel for Jews or Christians to be circumcised. He was a descendant of the tribe of Benjamin, which was one of the most revered tribes at the time. So he had a direct line. He could trace his ancestors there. As far as the law, he studied the law. We know he was a Pharisee. And then he says, and as far as following the law, I was faultless. So he had everything checked off, all of it. He had every reason to have confidence in himself and do exactly what the Judaizers were doing. But he didn't. He gave it all up for Christ. That made me think of the Mark Twain story 
You guys probably have all heard the Prince and the Pauper, right? Where two boys meet each other on the street. One's a prince, and the other one is a poor, homeless street kid. And they realize they look exactly the same. And they think, you know what would be so cool? If we could switch lives for one day, if we could change clothes. And so they do. And when I read about all the things that Paul had going for him, all the benefits he gave up for Christ, it makes me think of this prince who wanted to leave his castle, his wealth, his security, his safety, everything he knew for something he thought was better, just like Paul did. And, and because, honestly, that's what happened to Paul. He re, he's saying he realized these things, these treasures I had, they're worthless compared to the new prize. And then he goes on in the next verse, in verse 6. He says that he was so passionate, he persecuted the church. He says, when it comes to zeal, I persecuted the church. If you guys remember with me, Paul was Saul. He would hunt down apostles. He would help have them stoned. And this made me think of Darth Vader. One of the main enemies in Star Wars, right? A character so evil, his own men feared being promoted under his command because they knew he would eventually kill them. Right? But there was still good in him, and he was still able to be used for something better. And the same thing happened with Paul. Saul became Paul. He was transformed. God saw what could be, and he laid hold of him, and he changed him. But you know, I feel like the prince and the pauper, Darth Vader, neither of these do any justice or come close to articulating the incredible transformation that happened in Paul's life. It's almost as though he was one of those six blind men trying to explore this elephant. And God sees this blind guy battling him and fighting him because he, he can't believe or he won't believe who he is. So what does God need to do? He has to open his eyes as though opening a blind man's eyes. And it's almost poetic that in this case, in order to reveal himself to Saul, he had to blind him. And it was only then that Saul was able to actually see who God was. God saw what he could be, and he laid hold of him. The word Paul uses next in verse 8 to describe how he views his old treasures he said, I consider them garbage. The Greek word is skabala, and it means waste, but it can also be translated as manure. So what Paul's saying is these treasures that were worthless, they're actually almost contemptible or disgusting when compared with my new prize, Christ. So to summarize these verses, Paul shows the church why they should listen to him, because he was a Judaizer, in fact, a really good one, he had everything going for him, but also that he gave it all up so that he might gain Christ. And now we come to the really tough meat of this passage, so I want you guys to brace yourselves. Verses 9 through 16. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. 
Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or have arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Jesus Christ took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what's behind me and straining toward what is ahead, press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of, you, us, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. So Paul's saying here, push on towards the prize. And I started reading, if you notice, from just before verse 9. Because I wanted you to hear that I might gain Christ. Because what Paul says in these first two verses is he's articulating his desire for Christ. And it's a deep, it's a passionate, it's an intense desire for Christ. And he does this by laying out four ways he desires Christ. First, right there before verse 9, to gain him, to win him, to possess him. He gave up all his possessions. He wants to have the best possession of all. Then in verse 9, he says, I want to be found in Christ. And then in verse 10, the third thing he says, I want to know Christ. And then at the end of verse 10, he says, I want to know the power of his resurrection and be conformed to Christ and his death. Wow. That blew me away when I read that. Because we talk all the time about pursuing Christ and, and working on your relationship with him. But I don't know anybody in my life that has this type of hunger and this type of thirst for Christ. And just like I said before, you could spend as long as you wanted talking about just one of these four things. Gaining Christ. Being found in him. Wanting to know him. Wanting to be conformed to him in his death. You could talk about any one of those as long as you wanted. And no matter how long you spent, there would still be more to learn and more to say. But I want you to come with me right now, very gently. We're going to look at one part of it very closely, the third part. And I think it's the part that I probably talk with the youth about the most, knowing Christ. It's also the part I thought I knew the most about until I started researching this passage. I want to know him. Paul breaks that down into three parts there in verse 10. I'm going to read it to you guys. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. In some verses it says fellowship with his sufferings. Fellowship in his sufferings. Those three, those three things. Knowing the person of him. Power of his resurrection. Fellowship of his sufferings. Almost every message you've ever heard in some way will lead back to knowing the person of Christ. Hungering and thirsting after a deeper knowledge of him. Right? Desiring to be more intimate with him. And even the second one, the power of his resurrection, I'm willing to bet most of you have heard messages on that as well. But too often we separate the event of Christ dying and Christ being resurrected, his death and resurrection, an event. We separate that from who he is, the person of Christ. And what Paul's saying here is those things are inseparable, right? There is a power in his death and resurrection for us to be transformed and to be changed. But in order to use that, in order to harness it, we have to follow Christ's example every single day. What does that mean? Christ died and was resurrected. So every single day, you have to put to death your old self and resurrect yourself in Christ. It reminded me of the movie Groundhog Day, where this poor guy is stuck in one day repeating the same things over and over, 
repeating the same day over and over. That also reminded me of another movie called The Edge of Tomorrow where there's this soldier who wakes up in this battle where he's battling these aliens in the future. And no matter when he dies in that battle, he always wakes up back at the beginning of that day, battling them over and over. Daily dying to yourself, daily being resurrected in Christ. And what's beautiful is only then, when you have that power of his death and resurrection, can you begin to live out the truth that, listen to this, the truth that you were dead in sin, but now you're dead to sin. You were dead in sin, but now you're dead to sin. And then finally, the third part, fellowship with his suffering. All of us are grateful and thankful for and acknowledge the suffering of Christ for us, for our sins. But how many of us equate his suffering with our relationship with him? And Paul's saying here, that's exactly what you have to do. Because when you come into relationship with God, when his power becomes yours, his suffering becomes yours. And you realize that when you're suffering, he's suffering with you. Because he feels pain when you feel pain. And you gain a deeper and more intimate understanding of your relationship with him. Next, Paul explains in verses 12 and 13 that he doesn't for a second think that he's perfect. He doesn't think he's attained that goal that Christ laid hold of him for. And the way he says this is beautiful. I want to read it to you guys. Verse 12 and 13, he says, Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. That sounds confusing, right? But it demonstrates this beautiful contrast of our active nature and our passive nature. In our response to God. The first thing that happens in your relationship, God lays hold of you. He grabbed Saul on the way to Damascus and turned him and said, this is me, look at me. There's nothing you can do to make him do that, to help him do that, or to cause him to do that. That's why it's passive. It happens to you. You receive it. But the second part, the thing Christ has for you to take hold of, that's the active part. You have to choose to step out and take hold of it. To, when God turns you to face him, you have to begin running towards him. That's your choice. That's your response. That's the active part. Saul still had to choose to go to where God sent him. He didn't have to and he couldn't be forced to. And then Paul also says, I haven't attained it yet. I haven't gotten it yet. And this demonstrates the beautiful complexity of grace, right? Paul says, I don't have it. I don't think I have it yet. Someone who says they have it and they don't think they need more because maybe they have enough, just by saying that, they're showing they don't understand what grace is and they're in desperate need of it. But maybe they're not in the right state to receive it. But the person who says what Paul says, who says, I, I don't think I have it yet. I'm striving for it. I'm pressing for it. I need it. They're showing through their conscious inability that they're ready for grace and they're actually already receiving grace because you always need more grace. We're in desperate need of it, and we never have enough. And finally, in verse 14, Paul says that he presses on towards the prize. I had that picture of the runner up there. Paul says he presses on towards the prize as though he's a sprinter racing towards the finish line. You ask any professional, amateur, runner, high school, college, they'll tell you the way you run a race is you pace yourself. You don't use up all your strength at the beginning and then slow down. That's how you lose a race. You pace yourself. You save your strength. You get faster and faster. And at the very end, you sprint all out for the finish line. That's how you win. And that's what Paul's telling you to do. And he gives a tip, something he does. He says, 
I forget everything that's behind me. I focus only on what's in front of me. He's not talking about an ignorant, sinful type of forgetting. He just brought up his own past and his mistakes. He's talking about putting out every other aim, anything else he ever ran towards, so that he's only focused on the one thing that matters. And the commentary says about it, the fitter you grow for heaven, the faster you should run towards it. I thought that was beautiful. So to summarize this, Paul articulates his desire for Christ, acknowledges he's not perfect, but nonetheless, he's running, he's pressing on for that prize, and he wants you to do the same thing. Finally, in the last section, verses 17 through 21, we'll read together. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. Just as, just as, as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I've often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomachs. Their glory is in shame. Their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So here Paul starts in verse 17 by challenging the church, follow my example. And uh, he kind of reminds me of a parent, you know. He uses his mistakes. He says, learn from my mistakes. He hopes they'll avoid them. He uses his successes. He says, follow them. Learn from it. Do the same thing as me. It reminded me of my son, Cassius. Follows me around all the time. This is him, Superman, eating ice cream. He's learning from me. I'm constantly setting an example for him. One thing that I do that I guess I'm not super proud of, my wife probably wouldn't want me telling you guys, but with my daughter, I like to tease her a little bit. When we're sitting at the table, I'll say her name in a low voice. I'll go, Kasima, and she'll get really sad sometimes. Sometimes she won't care, and if she gets sad, I'll, go, I'll hug her. Oh, it's okay, it's okay. I kind of like to torture her like that. And my son, this summer, he caught on, and he noticed what I was doing, and he started reprimanding me. Dad, you be nice to Maymay. You be nice to Kasima. Dad, don't do that. That's mean. I was so proud of him. It's like, this guy's learning, and he's, he's instructing me until a month ago. A month ago, he was like, you know what? Forget that. Now he's doing it with me. So now he's torturing her as well. And he's going, Kasima. So uh, I'm worried now, and I maybe need to change what I'm doing a little bit. But it got me thinking about the example that I'm setting, right? If I have a spotty track record at best with my three-year-old, I can't imagine writing a letter to a church saying, follow my example. Look at me. I want to read a poem to you guys about this by Reverend Claude White. A little fellow follows me. A careful man I want to be, a little fellow follows me. I do not dare to go astray for, feel, for fear he'll go the self-same way. I cannot once escape his eyes. Whatever he sees me do, he tries. Like me, he says he's going to be the little chap who follows me. He thinks that I'm good and fine, believes in every word of mine. The base in me he must not see, the little chap who follows me. I must remember as I go through summer's sun and winter's snow, I am building for the years to be the little chap who follows me. But then I remember that Paul is not doing any of this through his own strength. He's leaning in and on Christ. That's how he can say, look at me, follow my example. That's how he can live out this example 
for the church in Philippi and for us today. And lastly, Paul explains, oh, not lastly, sorry, one more thing. He then moves on to caution the church against more false Christians, right? But this time not Judaizers, not legalism. He goes to the other extreme, lawlessness, and he gives four attributes of it. He says, watch out for those people who say they live like you, but actually don't. And the four attributes of lawlessness, he points out, are people who, whose end is in destruction, whose God is their stomach or gluttony, indulgence, right? Whose glory is in their shame and who only follow earthly things, materialism, possessions, idolatry. So he warns against this. Not just lawlessness, but legalism. And then finally in verse 20, he reminds them that their hope is in heaven because they are citizens of heaven. All of you are citizens in heaven. Which means what? We're ambassadors here on earth, or, or aliens, if you want to say, here on earth, awaiting our Savior to come in the final resurrection. And when he comes, he's going to change us. He's going to transform our spiritual bodies, our souls, through the power of his death and resurrection to be conformed with his body of glory. So he says, follow my example. And then he warns about lawlessness, and then he reminds the church who they really are, citizens of heaven. Okay, you guys made it. We're almost done. Recap real quick. In this chapter, Paul warns about two things, two different extremes. Both false prophets and false teachers, legalism and lawlessness. Then Paul sets himself up as an example for the church, himself and other saints around him. He says, follow my example. And he explains why he does everything he does and why we should as well. But the most important thing is he reminds us of that ultimate prize, heaven. And he challenges us to press on towards it. You know, it's crazy to think that Paul was so ready for heaven that death would not have been a sacrifice for him. Did you know that? He was so ready for heaven that the sacrifice for Paul was actually remaining on earth, working with the apostles, writing from prison, being separated from God who was in heaven. But he did it through Christ. I hope that I can grow and that we can grow to be that ready and that hungry for Jesus and for heaven. I want to challenge you guys today to run towards the prize, but don't do it in your own strength. Don't do it by yourself. Because no matter how hard you try, just like this rope, you're going to bend. You might try and press on towards the prize, but you'll fail if you do it in your own strength. Over and over again. You might hold out a little bit. You might be able to press on longer than people think in your own strength, but eventually you're going to sin. We're all sinners. You're going to fail. So that's why you need to lean on him, lean in his strength and his understanding. Because if you lean on him and press on in his strength, then something changes because you have the power of his death and resurrection at work in you. And you'll be able to press on in a way that you never were able to before. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you and we praise you. And we thank you for your word here for us. I pray that whatever spoke to us, that you would help us hide that in our heart. Help us meditate on it. Or go out today and talk to somebody about it. I pray that you would directly challenge each of us today to strive after, to press on, to push on for that prize that is you, and to put aside all other aims and forget everything that's behind us. In Jesus' name, amen.